Welcome to the Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about literature of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, an editor at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, coming to you from Fukuoka, Japan. Starting today, we will be bringing you a series of podcasts taken from the April 2023 Association for Mormon Letters Annual Conference, where there were panels discussing all kinds of issues on Mormonism and the arts, an award ceremony recognizing outstanding works published in 2022, and conversations with special award winners Michael Hicks and Stephen Carter. Welcome to our next session of the Association for Mormon Letters Conference. In this session, we will be honoring Michael Hicks, who will be presented with the Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, Michael is a composer, performer, and music scholar, fields in which he is highly respected. Beyond this, he's also made full use of his remarkable writing skills. So we're joined by Michael and joined by Lance Larson, uh, who will be interviewing him, talking about Michael's career. There's going to be an award citation that we'll publish on our website. Uh, let me read from a little bit of it. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, but it'll be available uh, on the AML website. One of his colleagues wrote, Michael Hicks is a perfect choice for the AML Lifetime Achievement Award. I can't think of anyone living who has contributed more verse and poetry Oh, sorry, more verse and prose in terms of titles, breadth, depth, ideas, or soul to Mormon letters, not to mention music theory and history, than Michael. His writing on important American musical pioneers, Henry Cowell and Christian Wolfe, is foundational and definitive, as is his writing on Mormon music history. His writing is cited so much because he is so often the first to delve into the many ripe conceptual and factual lacunae, <laughs> should look that up, lurking or in open sight in Mormonism and music. Moreover, his scholarly prose is among the best in its clarity, economy, wit, and forward momentum, which is unusual and commendable in the field. His worldly commendations, publications, and recognition are staggering. But creativity in the realm of words, sounds, and images find their ways into uncurated spaces with equal prolificity, generosity, and profundity. He was an early adopter of Facebook and has a large and loyal following on that medium. He uses it effectively and creatively to share political and religious insight, humor, music, anecdotes, art, but most poignantly for many of us, poetry, especially the psalm series. All of Michael's work is imbued with the soul and skill of a poet, and these are most potently evident in the psalms, each of which, incredible for how many there are, has its own unique color, rhythm, and insight. It's hard to locate their point of view in the two dimensions of the written word they employ. These writings uplift while introducing new puzzles, while confirming and reconciling us to the unsolvableness of the old ones. Michael has authored nine books on a wide variety of musical and literary themes, all of which are enriched by his careful scholarship and enlivened by his droll wit. He is the premium scholar of Mormon music history, producing three significant works, Mormonism and Music, A History, which won awards for both the MHA and AML, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, a biography, and Spencer Kibble's record collection, Essays on Mormon Music. Immensely readable and sparkling with fascinating anecdotes, they are some of the most enjoyable history books of Mormonism ever produced. His other music scholarship is written in the same spirit, covering a wide range of spirits, well beyond the classical canon. They include 60s rock, garage psychedelic, and other satisfactions, and two studies of avant-garde composers, Henry Cowell and Christian Wolfe. Recently, he has been publishing more personal work. The street legal version of Mormon's book is an insightful and humorous rewritten adaption of the Book of Mormon that won an AML award. Do Clouds Rest? Dementia Ventures with Mom is a short collection of funny, sad, and thoughtful essays about his mother's final eight months of life with dementia. His 2002 memoir, Wineskin, Freaking Jesus in the, in the 60s and 70s, tells the story of his upbringing in a traditional conservative family, then being part of a Jesus, of a Jesus Freak movement in the 70s, and his conversion to the LDS faith, his missionary experience, excommunication, and return all full of honest and vulnerable sharing of his own struggles with doubt, questioning, and ultimately transformation. This award honors Michael's lifetime of literary work. We look forward to more of his words of wisdom and expressions of empathy in the future, whether as psalms, folk songs, chamber music, or however he chooses to express himself. Okay, I'll turn things over to Lance. <laughs> I want to meet this guy. <laughs> it sounds interesting. <laughs> oh, Hey, Lance. Hey. It's great nice to see you here. Hold <laughs> up. Great, uh, some of uh, Jackie's work behind you. Yes, it nice. helps have an artist and family. Yeah, indeed. You don't have to have any of those fake backgrounds. 
Um, I, I think in, in lieu of a, an interview, we could actually just do a quick tour of your um, attic space right there. Yeah. You <laughs> explained, you know, some of the paraphernalia, Americana there. You, you, you don't see the half of it, trust me. Ellen, sure. <laughs> Um, I was just going to say, when did we first meet? Do you remember? We said, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted to start with that because it, it actually illuminates a little bit of discussion to follow. Um, sure. We met in tw 2002. Uh, so, um, gosh, tw 21 years ago. And do you recall how? I don't. I think you, I, I remember you petitioning to take my class and maybe I was a little bit skeptical because I had experience with other um, professors taking classes and they, they would allow briefly I mean within just a few weeks so that's my recording well I, you know I I want to bring it up uh first of all the the way the way I met you was uh I phoned you up because I had been at the DI and and going through books and whenever ever I run across an interesting poetry book or other kinds of books of course I pull it out and and I'm roaming through Erasable Walls, your first book, I believe, right? And 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 I thought, boy, this is good. This is just exactly the voice that speaks to me. And it, most of the time, I don't buy poetry books that I run across, but this one really got to me. And I took it home. I was reading it. And thought, where's this guy from? And I look at the back, and it's like, oh, he teaches at Brigham Young University, which is where I was teaching, of course, at that time. And I thought, oh, I need to, I need to meet this guy. So I called you up and was telling you, I, I love this book. And uh, we conversed, and then I sent you, I think, like the February of 2003. Early in 2003, I sent you a sheaf of my poems in a collection called Faith Healing, which you responded to very kindly and then made some suggestions. And so that sort of kicked off this ongoing uh, poetic conversation between us. And here here we are, 20-plus years later, continuing it. I actually had forgotten that part of the story. Remember you... Uh, well, you're so modest. <laughs> to, to take my class, and it became apparent within just a few weeks that uh, you were not uh, of the usual fare, let's say. And uh, what I would add to that conversation is, after a terrific semester and some really accomplished work, I think it was just a couple of years later, uh, we lost a member of, that sounds really ominous, a, a member of my writing group, writing out that I belong to, dropped out, and we needed another um, party. And so I ran your work by the other people in the group, and he said, yeah, let's bring Michael in. So this was not a matter of, oh, it would be good for him. We agreed it would be good for us. And so we became a full-fledged member of our writing group for, what, five or six years? Something like that, yeah. You know, I, I said that I, I wanted to, to mention that uh, encounter with you initially to pave a, the way into a, a, maybe a path that pertains to getting this award, which has... Uh, it may raise some questions for some people. I'm a music professor. I'm not, I don't have English degrees and uh, haven't been on an English faculty or taught an English class of any kind, which are usually some of the uh, barnacles, if, if not handmaidens of, of <laughs> such awards. But um, the, uh, the thing is, I was attracted to your work without any reference to Mormonism in a sort of ghettoized, you know, compartmentalized sense. It was like, this is good. I was thinking of uh, uh, Alan Gerganis uh, had an interview this past week in, uh, I think, the New York Times. And he refers to William Maxwell, the great editor from uh, The New Yorker, I think, for years, and renowned editor. And he says, he says, Maxwell was a martyr to quality. <laughs> I love that. For, he was a martyr to quality. And so if you look at the, the phrase association for Mormon letters, you can accentuate the Mormon part. And unfortunately, I think that may be done too much in the pursuits of uh, 
various sessions and so on. Association for Mormon Letters. And I think, well, first of all, I hope that this recognition for me reflects a little more emphasis on the letters part. Association for Mormon Letters. The Mormon is in there. But I hope that there is a little bit of, of martyrdom to quality in it, that there is a recognition of quality there. Um, I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm, uh, let's say, I'm a somewhat failed believer, but an adequate saint. I'll put it that way. I mean, I'm a very active member of the church and uh, love the work that I'm able to do right now serving at Jamestown, a branch here, assisted living, and play the piano for them and do lots of musical types of things and so on. But um, I think that, excuse me, that my encounter with your work is perfect for how I want to understand Mormon letters. And uh, as I used to say in my classes sometimes, I'd say Mormonism, i.e. the universe. Because <laughs> from, my, from my platform and dive into Mormonism, it was into suddenly the expansiveness of all of it which uh, is populated by quality and where the stars and the planets are all things to explore different versions of excellence. When I joined the church uh, as a young adult, they put me right into the pursuit of excellence program. You know, you have to fill out the goals and so forth. And that was the essence of Mormonism to me, roadshows and so on. From a, I think from a saintly point of view, um, so theology, I love it. And, and, uh, if, if the church, which is an island in the sea of Mormonism, if the, they wouldn't put it that way, I'm sure, but, <laughs> uh, if, <clears throat> how do I put this? The, the church is to me then and to me now, not to everyone, about authority and pioneering. You boil down the Mormon church to those things, and I I still hold to that. And the pioneering part is often absent, at least in the pioneering sense that your work uh, is and, and was to me, and what I, I, I wish my work to always be, whether it's in composition or performance or prose poetry, uh, writing liner notes, or even editing a journal, uh, those, that pioneering sense is, is there, uh, uh, has to be a handmaiden, I think, to authority. I like that. That's great. So um, that's how we read. Maybe at a similar vein, I remember um, often quoting to students in my class, the poet Rita Dove, who happens to be African-American. Yeah. And when people would talk to her about race and her poetry, she says, I don't want to be considered a hyphenated poet. Mm -hmm. She wants to be a yeah. poet first and, and, and maybe only who happens to write it sometimes. Yeah. And I would say the same thing about um, association of warm letters or poetry. Yeah. I just always want to emphasize the noun and let the adjective complicate things a little bit and perhaps yeah. provide a convenient gathering point, but I don't want that to be the basis of the conversation. Yeah, so. very good, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, the, the hyphenated is interesting, because to me, Mormonism is, uh, I mean, the Mormon letters, is the, the Mormon is saying, this is good stuff. I think of uh, I remember uh, Paul, Paul McCartney talking about when he first encountered Jimi Hendrix. He's in a club. Jeff and Beckett invited him to a club in England. So this is before any recordings of Hendrix had come out, uh, and he was playing. and And uh, McCartney tells the story, and he puts his finger to his mouth, and he goes, "He goes, this is good." <laughs> and uh, and so 
I love those kinds of experiences that I have with literature of, of many uh, of the writers that I encounter uh, in AML. Um, I, I want to have that experience. Of, this is good. This is good. And good is a is an underrated word, but it seemed to work well for um, I don't know the creator, <laughs> the front end of the book of Genesis, right? He saw it was good. He, I mean, what? There's no there's no higher value, right. you know. Plato at all, Aristotle, you know, they're investigating what does that mean? What is the good and the beautiful? And 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 Keats, of course, says that you know, put them together. That's all you need to know. Excellent. <laughs> well, I, I do want to instantiate this conversation with sure. some specifics from your work. Now, maybe a good sure. place to start would be uh, Wineskin. Let me just repeat the title. Uh, there's a lot in there. It's packed. Mm-hmm. Wineskin, Freaking Jesus in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. This is a memoir that appeared uh, last year, I guess, uh, from Signature. Uh, could you, in a nutshell, maybe tell us a little bit about the title? Or how you came to write this, or he came to write it right now. And I yeah. gotta go grab my copy, but go ahead and answer. Sure. So, the well, the tight. First of all, <laughs> we're all taught to uh, and commanded, as it were, to write a personal history. And there's that part of it. It's like, okay, I've never really done that, but I want to do it in a in a way that really gets into the shaping of my religious identity. There's tons of stuff that I didn't include in there that I could, of of more savory but mostly less savory aspects. But uh, there's that. Uh, it was prompted a little bit by our older son saying, um, probably ten years ago, he said, "So we, this was in a very private, enclosed space when he was living in California, working for Apple. We visited him, and and he says, so I understand you were." You were excommunicated at one point and and came back to the church. Uh, are you ever going to tell us about that? <laughs> so I thought, yeah, I should tell you sort of my whole path. Uh, and the, the the freaking Jesus part, well, first of all, the wineskin, it was like, this cannot not be used as a title. <laughs> it's a beautiful title. And that was what we called ourselves. Our group was the wineskin group. And it's like, it's such a beautiful word. So that was... That was a done deal. My, whatever comes out after that, the book is wineskin. And so, then, wineskin, you're talking about putting old wine in new new bottles or new wineskins. It's yeah, that, that's right. That was the impetus of the name of of this group of of Jesus people. You know, it's more polite to say Jesus people now, um, but uh, but Jesus freak was a pretty common thing back then. Now. Freaking Jesus in the 60s and 70s, uh, I think it's a very edgy title because freaking has a, a different connotation in an adjectival sense now. I was just using it in a gerund sense. We were freaking Jesus. Uh, and there was some pushback from uh, the proprietors at Signature say, are you sure you want to use that? Is that going to put people off? And I responded something to the effect of, I wanted to kind of put people off in, in that I want them to be alerted to this is not, you know, the pathway, you know, the road not taken or whatever. It, it, this is we were freaking, you know, and freaky was a great um, a value that you know it, it, uh, you freak out. <laughs> By the way. Um, even people like John Denver would use the term freak out, you know, and that was a good thing, a positive thing. So whatever um, uh, moss the word has gathered since then, it seemed like the right thing to say we were freaking Jesus and it and um, in the 60s and 70s, and that made it sort of smear into the whole of the 70s, which I hadn't originally intended. But uh, I thought, well, yeah, I, I was still doing it uh, later on. I, I've mentioned some people uh, this anecdote just a, uh, a couple of years ago. Well, maybe more, more than that because of the pandemic. But we were in an elders quorum, and they had a you know introductory meeting. Uh, they assigned different people rotate through the quorum, and they asked me to present my history. And I 
showed a lot of pictures and and referred to myself as I was kind of a hippie Jesus freak back then. And one of the brethren said, "You're still a hippie Jesus freak." <laughs> and, uh, so, so uh, I I appreciate that, and I think that you can't get it out of your system. That was just, you know, I, I think it was slow dripped into me for so long. It at the so-called formative years of adolescence that uh, it's never left. And I think that there's, I think that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints benefits a lot from my being in it and around it and bringing those sensibilities, which are described a lot in the book, to uh, to the table. Let's pray. Um, do you want to read a passage to us? Okay, I, I'll read a Maybe a short one. Um, there, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's it's hard to because this book is it's like a toddler. It's like say, do you have any great quotes from your toddler? It's like, well, I have a lot of great quotes, you know, from our forty-three-year-old daughter, <laughs> et cetera. But, but, uh, so I haven't yet habituated myself to. Oh, here's the good parts to read. So I'm always interested in things that people suggest. Oh, what about this passage? And so on. One that you suggested is just this one paragraph, and I will be reading, I hope, a little bit more from it in the seven o'clock session later, but uh, I'm going to switch out glasses here. I'm at that. Which power of reading glasses do you require at any given moment? And what's the, what's the bot side? So this is referring well maybe hand me to go back a little bit what page are you on? I, i'm just i'm on 188 so i'm just talking about when i was working as a janitor as a student at byu and uh, i was writing a prose then and uh, a little bit of poetry writing music i was a music major all my degrees are in music composition and so this gives a little sense of the tone and and the flavor, if I can use that, that term, of the prose in the book, uh, how illuminating it is about anything, I don't know. But it does suggest some good things about my process as a writer and as a uh, as a as a musician in, in a larger sense. And and by the way, musician in a larger sense is a way of saying being a writer is part of being a musician in a larger sense. Yeah. Uh, my janitorial job was the greenhouse for both scholarship and creativity. Four hours of pushing a vacuum cleaner down hallways, scrubbing baseboards, wiping off elevator button plates, etc., freed my mind to write papers, short stories, and even the occasional poem. Music, too. I'd lay sections out in my mind, concoct rhythms, assemble pitch collections, and even invent new experimental ideas for compositions. Being forced to do mindless labor freed me to do mindful labor. I looked forward every day to that afternoon shift where I could process in my head all I'd been injected with before noon. So that was a that was such a, an important time for me, the janitorial work, to do exactly what it says there. Uh, I'm glad to not be doing it anymore. <laughs> and there's there's other ways to get at those things, but you know that. Um, unstringing of the bow to use the metaphor that even joseph smith used you know is is essential you can't keep it tightened all the time and so this would allow the the free play as Kant said the free play of the imagination to take place and that still goes on and to me it's all musical it's all rhythm and color and tone and form that, that, I don't know what else there is in creation. I mean, Jackie, you know, look at her work. It's it's the same thing. Yeah, it's the. I mean, I'm looking. I'm looking at rhythm and color and tone and form. 
So if they had a question prepared, maybe this is a good point to introduce it. Sure. The question about composition. In our email exchange, you said something to the effect that poets and music professors teach composition, and you said that a good interview is a kind of composition, right? We're always gathering things and recombining them. Yeah. I'm wondering, um, is that one of the bedrock principles that informs the way you would teach music composition uh, in the classroom? Anyway, I just wondering if you could riff a bit on, on that process and, and how you share um, this earlier you introduced mindless, mindful, and so forth. How does all of that work when you're trying to share the craft and the tradition with somebody else? I'm not sure how it works. Um, it, there's a, there's always the pursuit of a kind of self, self alchemy. So you have these different elements and somehow you think you're going to come out with a precious metal at the end, but it is an experimentation. Now, over time, as far as teaching is concerned, you know, 35 years at BYU as a music professor, you know, I worked out my material pretty well, and I'd always try to add new things in and so on, but it was really a matter of of reaching the state where uh, I had the sleight of hand, the mental sleight of hand, to perform with students. And, uh, you know, how I would make one move to the next. I always knew what the next thing in their mind was. I, I go back to William James's talks to teachers, you know, like the turn of the last century. Teaching, he said, is two minds, one thought. And to to craft your thinking, your explication of anything technical, historical, um, moral, even, is is figuring out how to have that sort of experience. Two minds, one thought. Hopefully, a, a larger group of minds having a similar thought. But um, I, I'm not sure that I'm addressing your question, but even this conversation, I hope that there's a teacherly aspect to it that we're, we're teaching each other and hopefully people who are listening in that uh, it's all improv, of course. <laughs> that, or that's our whole lives. And it's all how to find the right ending. <laughs> because, I mean, that's, you know, if you're talking about Mormonism, that's what it's all about is finding how do you end this? Where do you end up? You know? And uh, so let me, let me actually, since uh, Psalms were brought up earlier, I, I, I pulled this Psalm out. This is Psalm 777. Okay. Sounds very biblical, doesn't it? No. But um, I, I, I was doing a Psalm a day. I've did a thousand of them. And then I, I called it quits for a variety of reasons, and and I'm going through them now, and and shuffling through and trying to collate them and come up with a few hundred, maybe three hundred, maybe three sixty-five, a, a psalm a day, end of a book. <laughs> but this is Psalm seven seven seven, and and I'm reading it partly to just show this is sort of current things that I'm I'm doing that are unpublished, other than in the the virtual realm of, of Facebook, but, uh, so <laughs> switch, switch glasses again. So Psalm seven, seven, seven in the middle of each day, Jesus found another day, like the hole woven into a fishing net where as in the rainbow scales of the tilapia, one could see visions feel rivers of afterlife sliding through calendars, hear rocks only in their watery singing amid streams you could toss seeds into, and every dead paradise would rise again, its trees multiplied by new equations the world didn't deserve but solved anyway. Well, that's great. So, um, I think, you know, that, that it's one sentence, <laughs> it's just one sentence, but I, I love the, the circuitous path it takes 
the linkage of one thing to the next and then it's like okay this is right this you know this is they're multiplied by equations the world didn't deserve but solved anyway that little something there is that's where it's like okay i feel that's the right ending uh merrill bradshaw one of my teachers in composition taught a uh, a class music 395 musicianship integration that's a whole other discussion i team taught with him for a while uh, but it was required of all students but his whole thing was the gesture and, and he's doing this with his hands he's, it's the gesture and you'd say well what what do you mean the gesture and he'd said it's just the <laughs> and uh i i had a great uh, when i studied renaissance music at the university of Illinois, herbert kelman very fine musicologist there and specialist in the renaissance he uh he was teaching a class in uh, heinrich schutz's music probably don't know his music he's actually an early baroque composer but for some reason kelman felt that heinrich schutz and georges de la tour the painter had something deeply in common and whenever you'd ask well, what is it he'd show you know because he'd show the paintings we'd listen to the music and he would he could only do this with his fingers he'd go it's it's just the <laughs> then I so 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 I think we're all pursuing as saints, hopefully adequate saints, uh, as writers, as creators of whatever. Show. We're we're looking for that any that final brushstroke, you know, for Jackie or or whatever uh, application or something to the canvas. We're looking for that moment of knowing that, you know, the famous quote of Paul Valerie. You know, a poem is never finished, only abandoned. But that the, the the perfect moment of abandonment is the quest. Yeah, and I think if we were to try to bring our critical faculties to bear on that poem, we could say a few things. I mean, <laughs> the success of those last lines will escape us, but there's a turn there, right? Or from the Italian planet, uh, there's a volta where things that have been introduced um, come to a culmination of sorts. And it seems to me that one thing you're doing in that poem is um, balancing different kinds of time, you know, earthly time versus eternal yeah. time. And that last image draws them together in a way that is yeah. pretty hard to resist. I mean, there's a subtle rhetoric to it, but um, you just get to the end and you leave the reader wanting a little bit more. That's always um, yeah. a success. You know, if you leave them with too much, then you need to do some cutting. Absolutely. Well, so yeah, and and this start, you know, it starts in the middle of each day. Jesus found another day, and and then it's like a hole, like the hole woven into a fishing net, which of course ties a few things together, pun intended, I guess. But yeah. And so, okay, so let's go into that, and then it's all these other things and. That's how it sort of, that, that's the lake that it falls into at the end. Let me follow up, if I may. I remember uh, when I was teaching a, a workshop uh, in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, and there was a woman who was a lapsed nun of sorts, so she started out in a convent but left. She always had a kind of worshipful nature, but felt that she could not ever articulate a conventional prayer mm -hmm. but she was prayerful or most prayerful when she was gardening and she was writing an essay about, yeah. about this phenomenon i guess i'm wondering is this practice of writing a psalm a day that kind of worshipful practice i mean clearly it's literary it's formal it's doing other kinds of things but does it allow you to give thanks break bread etc yeah yeah it, it it was exactly that and i miss it but i knew it's like okay i have to do other things now <laughs> you know sure but uh, and maybe i'll go back to it at some point i don't know but it was it became a very sacred time to do that that involved a certain kind of breathing beforehand and usually starting with a word i'd run across somewhere or or a phrase or a way of linking words or something in some other place prose poetry and it's like okay 
that's I'm starting with that and and then just seeing what will sort of flow in. But it was it was a it was literally sitting down for within an hour's time, most of the time, just just you know it, it evolved to that certainly it was it was more labored before that or things might be on my mind a day or two ahead or something and and uh and and of course it was a it was a beautiful thing to have this facebook experience that it just sounds awful to say now in some ways because of the sort of corruption and and corrosiveness of facebook in other regards but to know that there were people, and there's a few, who looked forward to this. It was part of their daily ritual to read this new thing. And sometimes it just it just was, it, they would say, oh, that's just what I needed today. And so I was having a kind of ministerial experience like that. and sharing it. So there was the writing process, which was a personal uh, ritual, but... The, the that direct communication. So immediate. Here's this thing. I made you this loaf. You know, as, as Andy Davis would, would would do. You know, uh, and some are better than others. You know, yeah. and and that's another thing that was beautiful to learn, and and is is a great thing to learn by by writing. Is just you know, sometimes it, it, it you get lucky. Yeah. <laughs> and just get lucky. And uh, I think of, uh, yeah, who was it? Uh, Bill Moyers interviewed, um, oh, what's her name? That was married to uh, Donald Hall, who passed away. Do you know how American poet? Jane Kenyon. Jane Kenyon, yes, thank you. And she wrote the poem, Let Evening Come, one of her best known. And he said, <laughs> she she read it on this broadcast. He's doing a bunch of poets or writers that you know made a series of. She read it, and he said, "Where did that come from?" And she said, "From the Holy Spirit." <laughs> I thought, "What a wow! What an answer!" <laughs> you know, because at a certain point, you just get lucky or blessed. But it's luck. It's like you you know where does where does any word come from in your head? <laughs> just sort of out there flashing in your in your ears and mind. Let me move to maybe a corollary uh, inquiry. Uh, your citation mentions that in many circles you're considered the authority on the history of Mormon music. One thing, and you've written some six books by my count, depends how you count them, on music and at least three on, you know, more, I would even describe the biographies or histories and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, most recently, the history of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir was Illinois. So one thing that I and others have noted is that these books are eminently readable, and often this kind of book seems as if it's written out of duty, like we need to gather these matters into one place where they can all be um, looked at in one class. Yeah. But there's a kind of ease, a kind of pleasure. You were talking earlier about style and 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 I suppose um, being the handmaiden of content or something like that. How does it work in a book length um, endeavor like that, where you're more um, obligated to fact? How do you keep the writing light and entertaining, and to give the reader that that same sort of feeling that they're reading a poem? Let's say, yeah. It's, it, I won't say it's difficult um, because that that's, has a bit of uh, bragginess about it, I suppose. But uh, I love the, the detective work, and, and a lot of people don't. So I really love plowing into things. In fact, you know, you mentioned uh, in the earlier correspondence this, this doors thing, you know, the, 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 the doors thing. We need about two hours to talk about that. <laughs> and, uh, so, but I, I love the, the, the prowling into, uh, things, you know, I'll bet you like, for example, with the, with the Henry Cowell book, uh, I had, I was working on a study of John Cage's studies with Arnold Schoenberg 
And I was at the Schoenberg Institute. And I got the Henry Cowell file because I knew that Cowell had uh, recommended that Cage, or Schoenberg, I guess, had recommended the Cage study with Cowell, something like that. I should remember this now. But so I got the Henry Cowell file, and there was a letter recommendation from Arnold Schoenberg for Henry Cowell. And on the back of it, in pencil, it said, written to help get Henry Cowell out of prison. And I thought, I didn't know he'd gone to prison. And so I start looking it up. And in the um, in a tip, typical, this was in many places, but in the sort of standard uh, dictionary of American uh, musical biography, it said that he had been uh, arrested on a morals charge, quote unquote, and in the late 1930s, and that the prosecuting attorney had discovered that he was innocent, and petitioned the governor to pardon him. So this is where I have the advantage as a detective. I got the, I got the, the uh, original court documents, found the name of the prosecuting attorney, looked him up in the Redwood City phone book, and phoned him up. And he said, are you serious? I had, I'd never heard he was pardoned. I have never had any doubt about his guilt. And so, and this person was had become had gone from prosecutor to a to a judge, so he was he was like what, <laughs> and so at that moment that began me searching into okay what really happened here, and that became an article that that uh, won some atten- a lot of attention and and award and then eventually led to a book on Henry Cowell up through his prison years essentially. So I love that part of it because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the, the memory palace decoration in my mind. Okay, so here are all these things. What's the, what's the feng shui of these in my mind? And, try, and if I'm designing a narrative, it's the same thing. I do think that uh, as far as the prose style, I learned a thing. You know, again, offhand, you discover things, and, and there, were, there was some talk with Arthur Henry King many, many years ago, and it was a film. I don't, maybe it was a film about him. I don't remember, but, but he was talking about Schoenberg and the number. Uh, sorry, sorry, about Shakespeare, <laughs> and uh, well, that was part of it, and uh, and cutting the number of syllables. How much can you get in the least number of syllables? I mean, this is old hat for you, but for me, it was like, oh my gosh. And and so I realized, you know, a lot of times the people I work with, and I discovered this as a as an editor later of the journal American Music, you know, people are really into multiplying syllables to subtract meaning. It makes no sense. So I do work on that a lot. How can I be brief? In just the number of seconds. Is there, be- is there a word that's adequate and probably better that's shorter in number of syllables? I mean, again, it's all had to you, but it was a real revelation to me. You know. Propositional phrases. Nonetheless, yeah. they're the enemy. Yeah. Most of your most professors don't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, whether it's in music uh, or I have a piece people can listen to on YouTube uh, or actually on my website, michaelhicks.org, I have a piece called um, Stations of the Cross. And it's very pared down. It's So it's like Stations of the Cross, not as a narrative, but it, but like shards of of um, stained glass, maybe. would be one way of describing a lot of it. So it's very inferential. And this, I feel the same way about prose writing. So I, but you know, I, uh, I think of Marianne Moore. You know, again, she'd probably think tell me something that I don't know. But you know, her thing about poetry that uh, you know, I, I, what is it? I, I too dislike it. Right. <laughs> but reading it with a perfect contempt for it, uh, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine, and I love that. That truth. That's what I'm looking at. It, in the, in these historical books, I, what's the genuine 
thing here? What is the truth of this that's authentic? And how how do these details uh, that are that are sort of called together from you know I was I was I had trouble with the Henry Cow book because the archives were closed to me and to other researchers, and so I had to be very cagey for for a long time. And then right before I had the book done, and then they suddenly opened the archives because his widow died and so on. So it was kind of fun. But, um, that's the, that's the, it's the same pursuit as everything, you know, it's, it's just, but you're starting with a set of objects instead of a bare room. Because when you're writing a poem, the blank page is your bare room. When you're writing a historical narrative you, you're you're searching out all of these objects <laughs> you're, kidding, you're gathering all this furniture and decorations and piling them up in a room and then it's like okay which ones stay in the room and how are they arranged once they're in there i love your metaphors here uh, most people would content themselves with well i have intellectual curiosity which we all have but you express that as growling as detective work it's gumshoe business and but about it and and secret right yeah. Um, yeah i like that and then when you try to explain um your process you, you mentioned fog shui and the memory palace and shards of glass these are all yeah. really killing um yeah. metaphors i think so clearly um i mean it's, it, it was great to hear you express this because i i think that um attention to those kinds of concerns express themselves in, in the style in which you write. Um, I, I did want to touch a little bit on uh, one book that we haven't mentioned. Hey, can, uh, I do, can I just stop yeah, for one second and say, in this process, I do, in writing the historical and biographical books, I do really respond to resistance. <laughs> that, if I feel abrasion, you know, in the archival, world coming back at me it's like oh yes because i get energy from the abrasion the friction is the point <laughs> uh, so that there's that aspect too so that was certainly the case with the tabernacle choir book and even earlier with the mormonism and music book it was like well wow, there's a lot of resistance here that tells me so i'm on the right path <laughs> exactly. yeah, even with palms i'm always telling the students worth attention in this poem yeah. Oh, yeah. It's at spice, you know, with, yeah. with, with conflict. You know, I had, again, you want to go on, but I'll mention you a, a really important thing for me, really important to my musical composition, but these other things as well, and, and it's expressed in your work and your teaching and what you just said about writing poetry. Um, I, we had a, a visitor, uh, Joseph Tall, an Israeli composer, visit the University of Illinois years ago. And he made this statement that has informed and insinuated itself into everything since he says, I have to do it in his voice, you know, every composition must begin with a contradiction. <laughs> and not everybody would agree with that. But I said, oh, that works for me. It's Hegelian in a way, I suppose, you know, the thesis, antithesis, and work it out. But I would teach students this way. I would say, okay, you want to write a piece? You can do it right now with nothing, okay? Give me, just tell me something, you know, to do on the piano. Simple. I'd do it. And then I'd say, now give me the opposite of that musically. And then I'd do that. I'd say, now listen to what happens. I'd play the one, and I'd play the other one. And then I play a variant on the first one, a tiny variant, and then the second one twice, and so on. And you could do that. Suddenly, the whole thing is just unfolding from a simple compositional point of view in music. Anyway, I, I do want to go back to your where oh, you I love that. With uh, uh, you set you set this up for a better question, I think. <laughs> so um, maybe your most unusual published work so far is. Um, see if I have the title right here. The street legal version of yeah. Mormon's book. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly built on a contradiction in um, language registers, Lenson. Yeah. yeah. Of course, it's not merely a translation. I was wondering 
what, what I've I've read pieces of it, I thought of it as a kind of midrash, mm-hmm. even though you're going mostly verse to verse. Mm-hmm. It's also a kind of commentary, isn't it? I was wondering. Oh yeah. Would you agree with that? If not, what is it? Um, how would you name this quite anomalous piece of work? <laughs> or what genre is it besides translation? Yeah, I had. Well, I I hadn't thought of it, and I and I think I even in the preface disclaim it as a translation per se. Right. And I hadn't thought of it as a midrash, but it definitely is a commentary. Now, here's how it began. We had a bishop who, like many bishops, would set a goal for the ward, or sometimes for the young people, but usually for the whole ward, you know, read the Book of Mormon again, he would say, in the next four months or six months, whatever it is, you know. He'd set a date. And I'd never read the Book of Mormon except once, right before I joined the church, and I and I really had problems with it because I was so steeped in the Bible and the New Testament and and the anachronistic and and um, I won't say plagiaristic, but the the sort of uh, siphoning in of of phrases from Paul, you know, into the uh, the the, the pre Christian era, for example, you know, that kind of thing. It it, it wasn't for me. I loved. Uh, I started with teaching the Prophet Joseph Smith. That was my entree into Mormon doctrine, and then. I got into Doctrine and Covenants and lots of other books, and I described that in, in Wineskin, of course. But so I'd never read the Book of Mormon again, and I thought, okay, I don't want to sit around feeling guilty once more, <laughs> for, or at least I need to find another way of feeling guilty. So, <laughs> the, uh, another means to guilt. So. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do it, but I could only do it if I get to rewrite it. If I, I, and so I literally copied the whole Book of Mormon into a Word document, just copy and paste, and then I went, I went verse by verse and rewrote it. And when I say rewriting it, a lot of it was uh, marginalia. A lot of it was, okay, let me explain this to you, as though I were in the voice of pseudepigraphic in that way, as, as, as though I were the author whose name is attached to a, a book and so on. That was that was the whole sum and substance of it, and there was no revision at all, <laughs> other than a little here that, you know, as I'm going along, oh, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. But the, when the whole was done, it was like, I don't want anyone to review this. I don't want anyone to... Uh, Say, oh, it needs more of this or less of that, and there and there are people that read it and said, I mean, you know, <laughs> some really so, uh, testy comments on Facebook, but some admiring ones. But it's like that was it for me. That's why I was doing it. I published it myself. I thought people will find things in this, and I was really pleased the other day to see uh, in Michael Austin's review of Wineskin, he refers to street legal. Uh, the SLV, we call it. <laughs> and he, he used the term endlessly fascinating, and I thought that that's a really sweet way of putting it. <laughs> but I haven't ever gone back to it, or, you know, other than to put it together and, you know, working on typography and so on. But that's what it, that was the origin and the sum and substance of it. But I think it, I think it, I'll pull it out very now, now and then. I should, I should say I never go back to it, but it just sort of flip it on its like, well, this is interesting. This part here, the the ruminations, so the midrashic, right. yeah. yeah. But that's what we value. It's not a it's not a rewrite for people to to substitute or anything. It's right. like, here's a sidebar, a big fat sidebar <laughs> to this other book. Here's another way to think about it, perhaps. Yeah. I have a former student, Shannon Castleton, who once said that when she creates her universe, um the rules of authorship will be altered slightly. So if you're a remarkable reader of a work, then you get credit for producing that work, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a move from, I guess, a writerly world to a readerly world. So yeah. we could say the Book of Mormon or Mormon's book by Mormon and Michael Hicks <laughs> because uh, yours was such a strong uh this rating or re-rating of the options work, I suppose. Yeah. Well, uh, this is an indulgent question. I hope you'll, you don't mind entertaining it. 
I know at certain points um, you've been called as a reward organist. And you, from what all indications, brought new meaning to prelude and postlude music, bringing in, um, I wouldn't say, homages to popular music or other kinds of symphonies and classical and so forth. So I was wondering if you could just comment on that and um, maybe talk about the way that has maybe brought more pleasure to you or maybe got you into trouble. <laughs> I invited people to listen more carefully to the the prelude. Yeah, there's there's prelude and postlude, both of which are obligato. That's a musical term for the the whole cacophony symphony taking place in, in, in people visiting one another. So it's a very old tradition, certainly going back to Martin Luther in, in the Protestant realm, but going back for centuries and centuries to take um, a popular tune and write sacred music to it. The, the Lomar may masses of Ockingham and Josquin Dupre and so on talk about 15th and 16th centuries. So there was an old tune, Loma, 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 you know, that's, that's the tune. And they would embed that. This was a big thing that all these composers were doing. They would embed that in their masses and so on. And uh, it, it, it was, it was a it was a sacral it was the it was a way of sacralizing, I think. Well, Luther took just flat out tunes that everybody knew that were folk tunes or popular music. There it wasn't related to genre of popular as such then, but you know what I'm saying, the people's music, vernacular music, and and turned them into hymns and chorales. So I, I'm just tapping into that tradition, but uh, doing it as was often done or centuries by linking the text associated or maybe something else associated with the music, the songs, I should say, because they were all always vocal pieces. So they were songs. And I, I do it in a neo-baroque style. It would be embedded in there. It would, it would not be flat out, except that I'll give you a couple of quick examples. The, because I needed to do that for myself. I wasn't doing it for the congregation, although there were a few in the congregation that started to figure out what was going on. <laughs> um, and by the way, this practice has spread from me and my posting of these to congregations around the country. And so I've had people say, oh, listen to this. And recently, I had a friend, um, I think in Arizona, who was playing me his prelude, and you could hear one talking about it, and he's playing um, R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts in the background. It's like, what a beautiful hymn. So I played, uh, I'll give you two quick examples. One that was sort of a jokey one, but it was perfect. Uh, I played a, you, you make it slow and soft and put a little counterpoint ornamentation in there. You could do anything, you know, turn any, you could transform any piece into a sacred sounding piece, particularly on the pipe organ in our case. And so we had a young women's day. Uh, they were all speaking, you know, all the young women leaders and so on. And I played a slow, reverent version of Madonna's "Like a Virgin," <laughs> and and, uh, and 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 it was. And again, these are on YouTube. You check them out. But the and then uh, it was a medley too, so it was hinged to the um, Bobby Fuller Four song. I fought the law and the law won. So there were those two. So that was one that was sort of, it was sort of a, 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 a uh, sneering look, you know. But in other occasions, on other occasions, for example, on a Mother's Day, actually multiple Mother's Days, I would play somewhere embedded in this, I would play Let It Be, the Beatles. And uh, in one, on one case, I would just have it sort of uh, hooked to There is Beauty All Around. So it's a kind of a medley of the two as a prelude. But in, in one case, I just played as postlude Let It Be, 
just fl- so obviously the Beatles song. You know the song, right? When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And there were a few people that kind of not looked at me and nod and didn't say they One sister came up and she just said, best Mother's Day song ever. <laughs> and I thought, you know, you're right. I'll tell you one other, uh, I'll give you one other example. Oh, sorry to belabor this, but it was a, it was another ritualized pursuit of mine for a long time. I uh, played um, as postlude Bridge Over Troubled Water. And the music chairman at the time, a, a pious and quite intelligent woman, but rigorous in her approach to handbookiness, <laughs> handbookishness. And she said, she heard, she said, oh, so we're playing the Beatles in church now? And I said, that's not the Beatles. That's Simon Garfunkel, Paul Simon, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And she said, well, you need to focus on the hymns. And I said, in what sense is Bridge Over Troubled Water not a hymn? And she said, and it's true. <laughs> I mean, if ever there was a hymn, and I actually talk about this in another video on YouTube. I talk about because I was raised when that song was new, with the notion that this the three verses of that depict a relationship to Christ in which you're weary, you come to Him, and then uh, you're 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 dealing with things. And then the last verse, "Sail on, silver girl, sail on by." Your time to come has uh, to your time to shine has come. All your dreams are on the way. So it's saying, okay, you go out onto the river yourself. You know, I'm not the bridge anymore. You sail on. It's a fantastic gospel message. I think so. Anyway, uh, yeah, that was a that was a, a beautiful several year period. And I have, if anyone wants, I've got a PDF where I wrote down each of the things that I did, because I posted them on Facebook, here's what I did today and why I did it and how I did it and so on. And there are links to YouTube uh, recordings of many. That's remarkable. Um, We're almost out of time. Maybe we have time for one final question. Uh What's next or what are you in the middle of? (laughs) Um, Well, I was afraid and certainly you were going to ask that. So. But not that you not that you need to be in the middle of something. Maybe you need Yeah. Yeah, give me a break, man. <laughs> well, I'm working on another book right now, actually, about my four years at the University of Illinois as a Mormon avant gardist. And it's a difficult thing to to work on a book knowing it's not going to be as good as the previous book. I know that. And so <laughs> how can I make it good in a different way? Going back to that word good. It, so that it, there's not there's not necessarily a comparison, but it's a memoir kind of thing. I'm collating the Psalms, but most of what I do is the sort of afterclap of teaching in really wonderful ways. I, you know, and I always point when people say he's a retired professor. I say, no, I'm an emeritus professor. I'm I'm the sagacious guy that people will come to and ask for help with. It. Oh, could you review this? So, so earlier today, someone as you and I were corresponding a little bit. And I got an email from a young woman who's working on a paper that I gave her some research materials on. She says, I've, I've done the paper. Will you read, or you're still willing to read it? So there's a lot of that kind of stuff. There's reviewing manuscripts for, for book publishers, sometimes article, uh, journal article publishers, and just different kinds of consultations, sometimes with respect to. How do you handle this at BYU? <laughs> There's a lot of that. <laughs> How do I deal with this situation and so on that, that you as a as an administrator, of course, are in the the deep a uh, flavorless milkshake of all this pressure. <laughs> so and only for two more months. Oh, really? Okay. So so you know, things. So I'm, I'm asked to do this. I'm asked. I'm doing a presentation for a group of IT people at, at uh, BYU, for example. They're having me come and talk about what's happening with the new hymn book. 
and how do you compile a hymn book and what are the issues involved? And so, I, so just there's always little things to do. Plus, ministerial work at at Jamestown, and so uh, I I love the emeritus status, and I love being paid to not be at BYU. <laughs> that's a wonderful thing. You'll get there. <laughs> well, that's a great place to end. So I'm sorry that we have to end. Thank you for your graciousness and. Thank you. Value. No obligation here. I was just happy to enter the flow and follow you along. Appreciate it. <laughs> well, thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. I hope it was a pleasure for the uh, the the eavesdroppers. The eavesdroppers, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and well deserved this citation. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for Dialogue Book Report. Daniel Foster Smith provides our music and edits the show. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. We are part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent podcasts who promote inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture, including wonderful shows like Face and Hat, featuring Aaron Brewster and Eric Jepson. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, and this is Dialogue Out Loud. My eyelashes were subtly coated in matte black mascara. On my cheeks, a light dusting of dusty rose-colored blush powder, just enough that I could feel comfortable and almost myself. On Tuesday, my visiting teacher said she knew I was really busy at work and brought over a casserole for dinner, the chief ingredient of which was... Zucchini. Maybe it isn't the Lamanite who needs to forsake the incorrect traditions of our forefathers. Maybe it's the belief of racial hierarchy that we need to forsake. Never learn to play the organ, the old woman told me. You might get a different calling from time to time. But make no mistake, once you go down the path of becoming a ward organist, that's what you'll be until you die. Each year, we bring you even more great fiction, personal essays, and poetry taken from the pages of our quarterly journal. We couldn't do this without your support. So thank you for reading, listening, and supporting Dialogue with your donations, subscriptions, or by simply leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. For more content like this, or to get involved with Dialogue events, go to dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue Podcast Network.